It is revelation time. We are going to just pick up where we left off last week. Last week we talked about the seven churches. Now remember, revelation basically is the revealing of Jesus. Revelation can be broken into three parts. The past, present, and future. Um, in verse chapter 1, verse 19, um, Jesus tells John to write what you have seen, what takes place now, and what will take place in the future. When he says what you have seen, that is basically what you have just seen in the revealing of me. Remember how Jesus revealed himself to his best friend on earth? And what was John's reaction to that? <laughs> Fell face down. Okay, so it's all about the revealing of who Jesus is. Um, and then write what takes place now. We talked about the seven churches that are located in Asia Minor. We covered five of them last week. And we're going to go ahead and hit the last two tonight. And then we will head into what takes place after this. So let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here tonight. Heavenly Father, I just pray that over the next 45 minutes that you will um, take away all distractions, that you will... Um, clear our minds and allow us to focus in on what you would have us know about these important scriptures in Revelation that you promised to bless us for just reading. Heavenly Father, I just pray that um, tonight we don't just take this as information and, and, and just listen to the word, but that we go out and do what it says, that we take this and apply it to our life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise that Jesus will return. And we give you all the glory. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation right towards the end of the Bible. And we will start with the sixth church, the church that is in Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, it says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. And so review, who is the angel? The messenger, the pastor. Very good. These are the words of him, that's Jesus, who is the holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Now, when, when Jesus is saying, these are the words of him who, hold, who is holy and true and who holds the key of David, that is a messianic reference um, to Isaiah twenty two twenty two. And then he continues, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we talked about last week, as Jesus is 
giving his last words to the church, he chose seven churches, seven literal churches that existed in Asia Minor, what's modern-day Turkey. Now, why seven? Why not eight? Why not six? Why didn't he include the... Um, what would be a great church? Berea? Why didn't he include Philippi? Why didn't he include Antioch? Why did he choose just these sevens? Well, the, word, the number seven is, is absolutely powerful in Scripture, and it means complete. So what Jesus is doing by choosing seven churches is he's saying, this is my complete message to the church. And I'm going to choose seven literal churches, but I'm going to give you my complete message to the church. And he chooses this church in Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia... For all you Eagles fans, even though there's an oxymoron, it means brotherly love, okay? It's a city of brotherly love. And this church had no condemnation whatsoever. As we look at the seven churches, Jesus normally introduces himself. He normally gives something that the church is doing correctly. He normally gives something that the church is doing wrong. He exhorts them into how to live a better life, how to correct what is wrong. And he gives them a warning and a promise. Well, as we've seen, some churches don't have one of those things. And for the church of Philadelphia, they don't have a condemnation. In fact, Jesus commends them. He commends them. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What a powerful statement that would be for the Savior to say to you. For the Savior to say to me, I, I know you have little strength. I know you're dealing with a lot of stuff and you're at to the point where you just want to give up. But you have not denied me. You've kept my word. And this church was doing that. In the church of Philadelphia, or in the city of Philadelphia, where this church was, it was a heavy Jewish population. It was considered the center of Greek culture. And the church was persecuted in this city. And yet Jesus is saying, I know your deeds. Don't give up. And then he doesn't condemn the church. He condemns those who are persecuting the church. And he says, I will make these people bow down to you and acknowledge that I love you. How many of you, when you were watching the Passion of the Christ, and you just naturally go, pick Jesus, pick Jesus, pick Jesus. And you just want to strangle those who are yelling crucify. You just wanted everything to stop and God to say, this is my son. Bow down. Stop it. And Jesus is looking at this church going, one day they will acknowledge not only me, but they will acknowledge that I loved you. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now notice he didn't say, I will make a pillar to honor you. Now in the in the actual literal city of Philadelphia, they would make pillars and honor their heroes, honor their gods. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm not going to make a pillar honoring you. You are going to be the pillar. You are the memorial. You are the ones that will be erected in the house of my God. 
Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then we get to the seventh church. An interesting church. The church of Laodicea. So let's read it and... And then we'll talk about this because for our church, and I'm going to talk about Cornerstone, but for the modern church, this is the church we should pay particular attention to. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Again, Jesus identifies himself with a piece of the description found in Gen- or Revelation chapter 1. And here are the familiar words. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot or cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And the actual wording there, it's literally, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. It's so disgusting. How many of you have ever eaten something that the minute it was in your mouth, you're like, and you just get it out of there. You don't care who's looking. You don't care about decor. It's just in your hands. How many have ever done that? Okay. This is the church of Laodicea to Jesus. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. Where have we heard that before? But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The church of Laodicea was located in Laodicea. And it was a a community, a city that was known for banking and commerce in the ancient world. It was a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy city. It was famous for its medicine. In particular, the brand of eye salve that they would put to help cure blindness. And look how Jesus compares them with that. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in in the fire so that you could become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And solve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Hebrews 12, chapter 6, talks about how God disciplines those he loves. He disciplines his own children. And so we look at this, and Jesus is looking at this church, this church that is rich and wealthy has everything going for them according to how the world views things. A church that looks at God and says, I I really don't need you. I'll show up on Sundays and I'll worship you. Or I'll at least lip sync. I'll acknowledge your existence. I'll go out and do some things. But I'm not going to be sold out for you because you know what? I'm doing pretty good on my own. And this church was neither cold, they weren't absolutely evil, but they weren't really hot for Jesus either. They were just somewhere in the middle. And what did Jesus say about that? I'd rather you be either hot for me or don't even know me. But don't play the game. 
And instead of trusting on your own riches, why don't you buy from me salve that will allow you to see? Not physically see, but spiritually see. Why don't you buy from me clothes that, not, that will not cover your physical nakedness, but your spiritual nakedness? Why don't you let me refine you? And as we look at how the ancient refiners used to refine gold, they used to take just a big old vat, a big old pot, sort of like that old witch's brew type thing, and they would stir it and they'd place a fire under it. And as they would stir it, the impurities would rise to the top. And then they would take a little, a little a plate and they would s- scrape it off. And that was called the slag. And they would keep doing this, increasing the heat, so that as the refiner was looking at it, he knew the gold was pure when he could do this. When he can lean over the pot and see his reflection. And so God is saying, buy from me gold. Let me refine you. Let me turn up the heat in your life. Let me stir you a little bit. Let me take the impurities out so that ultimately, like Ephesians 5.1 says, that they can see my reflection. Be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. When people see you, they should see me. And that's the ultimate goal. As we go out into the community of Chandler or Santan or whatever community you live in, when people see you, they should see God. They should see God's reflection in your life, God's reflection in your talk, God's reflection in your finances. The church of Laodicea was not doing that. And then here's a fairly famous verse, often used out of context. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Many people use this as an evangelistic verse, and it does have an evangelistic bent to it. But Jesus is not talking to the unreached. He is talking to the church. I stand at your door and I knock. Will you let me into your worship? Will you let me into your life? The famous reformer Martin Luther ran up to the church and nailed upon it the 95 Theses. Here's what is wrong with what is happening in the church today. What would Jesus do at the doors of our church? More specifically, the church in general. We have been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit in our hearts. The temple is now our body. What is Jesus nailing upon the door of your heart? What needs to change? What's blocking Jesus from coming in and eating with you? It's a famous picture, and I don't know if the cameraman can get this. It's actually in London now, St. Paul's. And it's this famous picture by Holman Hunt. And as he displayed it, and the one in the, the church is way bigger... We see that Jesus is standing at the door and and one reporter came up to him. That is a masterpiece. It's beautiful. But you forgot something. And the artist panicked a little bit. What? He's all, there's no latch on the door. And he took a breath and he said, it's because the latch is on the inside. Jesus is waiting for us 
to open that door. Jesus is waiting for this church to open the door and let him come in. Because when Jesus comes into the church, nothing can stop the church. Remember the first church. Jesus says, if you, if you, don't, if, if you don't come back to me, I'm just going to take your church away. I'm just going to take the distraction away. I love how Jesus talks about you're neither hot nor cold. Because in Laodicea, they would get that. For us, we're like, okay, that's riding the fence. Laodicea, they totally get that because the city sat between two water sources. On one side of the city was the hot springs. And when you went to the hot springs and you drank of the water, it was pure. It was clean. It was invigorating and refreshing. And on the other side of the city was water source that had ice cold water. And they built aqueducts to bring the water into the city. But by the time it got to the city, it it merged and it became lukewarm, stale, and disgusting. And so when Jesus is saying, your spiritual life is akin to the water you drink, they got it. They got it. Jesus is the master teacher. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And there Jesus completes his message to the seven churches. Not only the seven churches in Asia Minor, but the church over history. Now, before we get into the first two words of chapter 4 and what that means, let's talk about this whole idea of the seven churches because many theologians believe that not only do these represent seven literal churches, but it represents prophetically seven church ages throughout the history. Now, we can't be dogmatic on this. But many, many theologians, myself, and I use theologian loosely with myself, believe that that is true. And so if we look at this, the first church, Ephesus, would represent the church of the first century. The church that we see listed in Acts, the early church. The church of Smyrna would represent the persecuted church of the second and third centuries. What many call the martyred church. And the church in the 2nd and 3rd century AD was a place of absolute despair on the outside. Believers were crucified, beheaded, sawed in two. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11 towards the end, it walks through what happened to those believers who by faith stood up for Jesus. They would place dead bodies on the backs of believers and they would walk around the city until they succumbed to the sickness and death that was on them. They would place tar on them and they would impale them on a stake. And believers would would line the city streets of Rome and would be lit on fire to light those streets. We've seen many famous movies and depictions of what happened in the Colosseums of those days where Christians 
were led to slaughter in front of gladiators, were drugged behind chariots, were fed to lions for show. If we read Josephus or Suetonius or some of the great historians of that day, both Roman and Jewish, you will see some of the absolute disgusting images of what happened to Christians of those days. But then you would also see the glory of God. Because Rome, as we would find out, would eventually become a Christian empire. And it wasn't because of the life of the Christians. It was often because of the death of the Christians and the way they died. As lions were coming up to take bites, the Christians would be singing psalms and praises to Jesus. Dads would be covering up their families as the animals came down upon them. They would be yelling out to God to forgive. This church was a great church, and we see there was no condemnation. The church of Pergamos represented the church from about 312 to about 500 A.D. We see the church of Thyatira. And again, I know we don't have time to really break these down. We only have 45 minutes, but quick commercial. Remember, Sunday mornings at 9, go to the Revelation study. It is a great, great study. Thyatira, the fourth church, would represent the church of the Dark Ages all the way up until about the 16th century. This was a church that was pretty much dominated by the universal church. The church of Sardis would represent the church of the Renaissance and the Reformation. This is Martin Luther's um, church era. The Church of Philadelphia would represent the church of the revival of the 19th century. And then we get to the church, the lukewarm church of Laodicea, which would represent the church, the end times lukewarm church, us. So whether you um, believe that those are actually prophetic, that's up to you. Do your study. Um, But I just give those to you for research. So let's walk into the future here without the DeLorean. Let's try that. All right, so we've got chapters 1, 2, and 3 covered, and we've actually gone verse by verse. Don't get used to that. Okay, we're going to fly through. Um, So the throne in heaven. heaven. Chapter 4 of Revelation is often called the throne chapter because God's throne is mentioned more times here than, than the rest of the, the books of the New Testament. And it starts out with the two words, after this. John says, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me Like a trumpet said. Now, what was the voice he first heard? Jesus. And remember, whenever you see the words like in Revelation, it doesn't mean Jesus really had one of those trumpets out of his mouth doing any of that. It was symbolic. It was comparing the voice to something that the people, the readers would know. And in those days, the trumpet was the most abrasive, loud, attention-getting sound that you can have. Today, maybe it's a train horn or something like that. But in those days, it was the trumpet. And the trumpet often announced attention. And so 
After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. What's this? Many theologians believe that the this that it's talking about is what's commonly referred to as the rapture. Now, you need to understand that the rapture, the word rapture is not even found in the Bible. But what it's referring to, most likely, is the catching up of the church. After this, the catching up of the church, it just spent two chapters talking about seven churches, talking about the church. And from chapter four all the way um, to, I, off the top of my head, to 19-something, the word church is not even mentioned in, the, in Revelation. So many believe that the rapture happens right here in Revelation. After this, I looked up and there was a door standing open. Okay, this is the door to heaven is now open. And look at verse 2. At once I was in the spirit. Okay, and that's referencing that the body's still down there. I was now up in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, before we walk further down chapter 4, let's talk about what the rapture is. If you have your Bible, go to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. It's after Colossians, about 90% of the way through your Bible. It's in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians. And this was Paul's letter to the church of Thessalonica. And look at what it says. Brothers and sisters, verse 13 in chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that those who are... We tell you that we who are still alive... Who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left um, will be caught up. That's what rapture literally means to be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The rapture. The catching up. And we can look in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54. Exact same description of what this rapture looks like. So what is the rapture? The rapture is the catching up of the church. The Bible describes it like a thief in the night. Like a twinkling in the eye. Everybody blink your eye. That's what it's referring to. Blink, here, gone. Okay, that's, that's how quick it is. Week one, I told you one of my junior hires misunderstandings of what the rapture was. And she thought she would slowly rapture and her clothes would slowly fall off. And everyone would see her floating in the air. The rapture is just like that. And you're gone. It's the catching up of the church. 
In my, in my dreams, I thought it would be funny to take one of these mannequins and, and rapture them really quick, but we just could not figure out how to do it. But I knew it would scare the bejeebers out of you. But, oh, well, we'll try it again. So the rapture is just the catching up of the church immediately. Okay, and we'll walk through what that looks like. But just imagine what that would be like. Imagine if the rapture would happen right now. What would it be like here? Hopefully we would all be gone. Except for the mannequins, most of them. Now, what gets raptured? Is it the spirit? Or is it the whole body? It's the entire body. What would be left? Clothes. Ha! What? Okay, you're, you're, you're jumping ahead of me, but yes. Okay? Yeah, most people, when, when they, they see the rapture, they say, oh, there will be clothes laying on the seat. There'll be more than that laying on the seat. Jewelry, stuff, false teeth. In South Beach, things will be bouncing. <laughs> you get it? Okay. Imagine looking at someone who's totally tatted down. Their body disappears and just like this, this face just goes and disappears as the ink falls to the ground. The rapture is going to be crazy. It's not going to be all, oh, cool, I've got new jeans. You're not going to want to touch that stuff. It's going to be gross. But more than that, it's going to be terrifying. What would happen in a world when the church is raptured? Now, when I say church, I'm not saying those who attend church. I'm saying those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. What would the world look like if that happened? What would the highway system look like? It would be messed up. Michigan would be normal. <laughs> Sorry, I'm an Ohio State Buckeye. We won, by the way. Um, some countries would be more affected than others. Some cities more affected, some families. What are some strollers across the nation going to look like? And what's the facial reaction on those who are pushing the strollers? Eastern Airlines, remember that? They used to have a rule that you could not have two Christian pilots. It's actually true. What's going to happen? It's going to be chaos. It's going to be chaos. What's going to be left? People are going to be searching for leadership. What's going to happen to governments? Hold your comments. But what's going to happen to governments when Christians all of a sudden are raptured? What's going to happen to the power grid? Those who have control over nuclear weapons. What's going to happen? It's going to be chaos. And the world is going to be looking for an answer. And shortly after that, they're going to be looking for a scapegoat. And we'll get to that when we talk about the tribulation. So when does the rapture happen? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm presenting what, what, what is called pre-trib. That the rapture happens before the tribulation. The tribulation is the seven-year tribulation of the church. Or not of the church, duh. Uh, the seven-year tribulation that follows the rapture. There are those theologians that, also, that believe that the rapture happens at the end. And there are few that actually think it happens in the middle. 
What I present to you tonight is that I believe, this church believes, and a great majority of the theologians believe that the rapture actually happens at the beginning of the tribulation. What happens at the end of the tribulation? I know we're jumping ahead, but what happens at the end of the tribulation? The second coming of Jesus. And here's why we, we, we think they are two separate instances. The rapture, the believers are caught in the air. They meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. At the second coming, the believers return with the Lord to earth. So those are two totally different descriptions. The second coming occurs after the great and terrible tribulation. The rapture occurs before the tribulation. The rapture is the removal of believers from the earth as an act of deliverance. The second coming includes the removal of unbelievers as an act of judgment. The rapture will be secret and instant. Remember, the second coming will be visible to all. Remember, when Jesus comes down in the second coming, he's visible to all nations. That's totally different than a thief in the night. The second coming of Christ will occur, will not occur until after certain events happen in the end times. The rapture is imminent. It could take place at any moment. It could take place now. If the rapture was at the end of the tribulation, it would be easy to sort of count down when Jesus was coming back. But yet no one knows the day and the hour that Jesus is coming back for his church. It's like a thief in the night. Now again, if you believe that the rapture is at the end of the tribulation, that's a minor thing. And so often churches major on those minor differences that we have, and we minor on some of the main... Okay? So it, whatever you believe, that, that doesn't affect the fact that Jesus is coming back at some point, and that if you do not have Jesus in your heart as your Lord and Savior... You will not go with him. So after this is a reference. And if you turn over um, in First uh, Corinth or First Thessalonians chapter five, we see the reference to the thief in the night. For you know very well, verse two, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 9 in chapter 5 says, For God didn't appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So the Lord did not appoint his church to go through the tribulation, the wrath. And some people will say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair that, that the church is not allowed to go through the wrath when all those other churches were persecuted. Well, it's also not fair for someone who died the day before the rapture. Look at 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. And it describes this man of lawlessness. And look what it says concerning, verse 1, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and to our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word or mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? 
And now you know what is holding him back, and this is important, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. Verse 7, underline this. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Some of your translations might say the restrainer. This restrainer is holding them back until the restrainer is taken out of the way. What could possibly have the power to hold Satan back? The Holy Spirit. What happens if the church is raptured at the beginning of the tribulation? If the church is taken out, who goes with the church? Who has been indwelt? The Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is taken out, who has to go with him? Because remember, you cannot lose the Spirit. He has been sealed in you. The first couple uh, chapters of Ephesians talks about the Holy Spirit being a deposit, an inheritance for the believers, a seal that can never be taken away. And so if the Spirit is removed, the restrainer is removed, the church has to go, which is another reason why we believe the rapture, the catching up happens at the beginning of the tribulation. All right, let's keep rolling down chapter four here. Revelation chapter four. Verse 2, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow that shone shone like an emerald encircling the throne. Okay, so it describes, here's what John's seeing. He's seeing this, this picture of a throne and one sitting on the throne. The reference to someone sitting on the throne is a reference to someone who is still in control, who is still reigning, who still has authority. Just like we we talk about a president, a sitting president, that means they are active. God is on the throne. So many times in our life we go, where is God? Well, he's on the throne and he's active and he's in control. And he is reigning. And he describes had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Jasper was this translucent diamond-like gem that represents purity. The ruby is dark red, represents, represents the blood, the judgment. And then encircling the throne was a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircling the throne. So this is different than a rainbow that we would see with Noah's Ark or that we would see in one of our monsoons that just is sort of this St. Louis Arch type thing. This was a rainbow that was completely formed and going around the throne, much like a halo would be. It was complete. And it wasn't a rainbow of many colors. It was a rainbow that shone as green. Could you imagine the beauty that was behind this scene? And then we look in chapter or verse four, surrounding the throne were the twenty-four were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Okay, we do not know who the twenty-four elders are. If someone says I know I know their names, most likely they think they're one of them, but we, we don't know. 
It's not our elders, even though our elders are sweet, but it's not our elders. There is a great possibility that 12 of them are the apostles. The 11 disciples plus Paul. But we can't be dogmatic on that. It is also possible that 12 of them, some people believe that it's representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't believe that, and here's why. Look at the description of these 24 elders. What are they wearing? Seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. That is a reference to a saint. That is a reference to a believer, not someone from the Old Testament. This is a representative of someone from the church. So we don't know who the 24 elders are, but they encircle the throne. They had crowns of gold on their heads. Many times in the New Testament, there's a description of the different crowns. And again, we don't have time tonight to talk about each one of the crowns. But there's a description of the crowns that, that as we live a life worthy of the call, we will receive one day. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God or, or the sevenfold spirit of God. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the seven lamps are the representative of his judgment. And, and on the throne, we have peals of thunder and lightning. Apparently, it is an incredible light show. How many enjoy fireworks? Okay. This is the ultimate show. Now, I remember when I was... I'm going to out my aunt and uncle right now. Hopefully, my grandpa is listening. Um, When I was young, they used to take me to Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles. And we used to watch the Pink Floyd laser experience. I was young. And so I'm sitting back there. Everyone is chilled. I was too young to understand why they were all chilled. Um, And we're just sitting there watching the lights. And I enjoyed it. Now, later I realized what my aunt and uncle were actually doing, sinners, but this is something that is so far beyond what a Pink Floyd show would be. This is incredible. Also, in front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear and crystal. Again, we don't necessarily know what this represents. Some believe it represents the firmament um, that was described in Genesis chapter 1. In the center, around the throne, were the four living creatures, and they were covered... And they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was like the face of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Okay. (laughs) Now we're getting weird. (laughs) All right. Here's where Revelation starts to slow down for a lot of people. And they're just like, say, what? Here's a description of four living creatures. It's symbolic. And we see representations of of the four types of created. We we, we see the wild beast. We see the domesticated. um, We see the man and we see the the flying animal. Um, We see Jesus sort of represented in each of the four gospels as one of these. We don't necessarily know what these four creatures represent. Most likely they're angels. Most likely, there's specific types of angels, like seraphim. Their job is to worship God. 
They have eyes all around them. They see it. It represents complete knowledge. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is to come. Ezekiel 10, 12 sort of describes some of these. And we see throughout Ezekiel, the four living creatures mentioned over and over and over again. Ezekiel 10, 20. Ezekiel 1, 4 through 14. Whatever these four living creatures are, most likely angelic beings, their job is to worship God. And to worship God with all the passion and power and truth and knowledge in the world. What would it be like to see that scene? Whenever the four living, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns. That's where we get the term casting crowns. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your, your will they were created and have their being. As we close, I just want you to picture that sight. Picture John. As he walks through this open door and sees God in all his glory sitting on the throne. With these 24 elders worshiping him. Not like I worship. I worship like an idiot. I'm just being transparent with you. I'm being Jasper right now. I am totally being transparent. I'm not a good worshiper. I grew up in a real traditional church. It is real hard for me in worship. When everybody starts raising their hands, I'm just like, (laughs) it's hard for whatever reason. I don't know. And when I grew up, I used to picture heaven as just, just we're up there playing harp. And I was just like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) But this is so amazing. And it is so beyond our comprehension It's so much greater than what our worship is, even though Barrett and Ryan are amazing. This is legit stuff. This is uncontrollable passion. This is the type of worship that brings you to your face. This is what brought John to his face. And it might be a little weird, but it's going to be powerful. And it's going to be out of the norm. Can you imagine if you came in late, if, like half the church, if you come in late and everybody's laying on the floor, you'd be like, (laughs) but this is going to be crazy cool. We're going to get to watch angels worship. We're going to get to see God in all his glory, the creator of all things. And we'll get to heaven as we go on in Revelation towards the end. But heaven is unbelievable. It's indescribable. God is indescribable. Worship is going to be uncontrollable. We're going to be falling to our face in complete joy. The term casting their crowns, 
is basically they're giving their life, their ministry, everything they've earned. It's all to God. What if we as a church got out of the lukewarm and stepped a little bit into that kind of worship? Not for 13.5 minutes in a queue or not for some Sunday, but for ever. What if we stepped in and we worshiped with our life, our thoughts, our actions, our finances, everything? Imagine what God would do in this community. This is what Jesus was trying to get across to his church. Take what I have given you and hold up the light so everyone can see. This is what he commended some of the early churches for. Your worship helped turn an empire towards Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be cool that as if we walked out into our city, people didn't go, oh, that's a cornerstone person, but they said that's a person of Jesus? That's what Revelation's all about. It's the revealing of Jesus, of who he is, and how we should worship him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love. And we thank you that someday we will get to worship him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Heavenly Father, I, I just pray that me specifically and for all of us in here, that you, that you give us the passion to live that life worthy of the call, to go out there and change this city for Jesus. Change this country. Change lives in India, in Kenya, in Jamaica. Change the world for you. Give us the faith and the courage to live that. And we will give you all the glory. We will give you all the rewards and we will cast them to your feet. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. We have about 10 minutes for questions. If you have any questions, I know we, we flew through tonight. If you have questions on stuff that's happening in tribulation after the rapture, hold off on those because we will try to get those. And I will try to answer these questions to the best of my knowledge. Again, I'm not... Yes, um, sir. Back in Revelation 3, when you were saying, if you, if you don't let me in, then the church will be taken away from you. Does that mean like you will be banned from church and you can't go anymore? What it's referenced to is actually, um, it's similar. The, the, the passage in, in chapter 320 is very similar to what happens in chapter 2 in the first couple verses there when Jesus says, don't forget about me. I'm here knocking. Don't forsake me. Don't leave me behind. If you do... I will take whatever distraction is between you and me. And it's possible it's the church. It's possible that you can get too busy for God that you forget God. And so Jesus in chapter 320 is saying, Hello, I'm here. I'm not necessarily that sad, but I'm, I'm here. And I want to be a part. Remember, Jesus walks amongst the churches. He has the messengers, the pastors in his hand. He wants to be a part of this ministry. Sometimes we get so creative that we create Jesus right out of our program. We get so fancy that we forget Jesus. And he's just warning the church, don't do that. Don't do that.
Hi, can you tell us more about the Church of Sardis? Church of Sardis. Church of Sardis, the fifth church. All right, the church of Sardis. Let me just read it real quick. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits, the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will, they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's looking at that church and saying, you've got a great reputation, but you're fake. You say you're Christian, you say you're a believer, but you're putting on a show. Now, there are some in your church that are truly believers. They are dressed in white, which is, an, which is a reference to the fact that they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The rest of you, you haven't done that. You say you're Christian for whatever reason, whether it's to make money, whether whatever, but you're playing the religious game. So he's looking at this church saying, stop being religious and get a relationship with me. And so that, that, that's, his, that's his sort of focus on them. Stop being fake. Yep. Yep. So this question might be a little bit too big for this moment, but I was wondering if you can explain a little bit more about the people who are asleep in death when you talked about that in First um, Thessalonians mm-hmm. 4 and in, was it Second Corinthians? Mm-hmm. If you can explain a little bit about the people who are asleep. Are they asleep in death? Are they in heaven? How does that all fit in with the rapture? Are they coming back with Jesus before the people are caught up? How yes. does all that fit? Okay, uh, asleep is a, re- is a reference um, that, to death. Okay, it's a, re- a reference to physical death. And so it says the dead... In Christ. Now that's key, the words in Christ. A lot of people say the dead will rise first. That's not what it says. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we will be raptured. So we will both be raptured up together. So that is a reference not to the Old Testament. It is only a reference to the church in Christ. And so when it says they are asleep, it means they are, yes, they are physically dead, but when the rapture happens, the church will be raptured, and that's just not the church that is living when it happens. It's the entire church from the resurrection until the rapture. The dead in Christ, which is the great majority of that rapture, will go first and will meet with the current ones who have all the clothes left. Is that... Not quite. That'll teach you to walk away. <laughs> so are the people who died in Christ then, are they asleep in the ground or are they in okay. oh, heaven? Or okay, okay, how okay. does that, that yes. I'm trying to figure out how all of that fits in with okay. the rapture. It, it's talking about the, uh, the bodily resurrection. So that at that point, their bodies will be, will be resurrected, raptured. When, when we die, 
our last breath, the next breath, our first breath will be in the presence of Jesus. Okay? What, what it's talking about, it's talking about the full body resurrection, the rapture. Yeah. Yeah, no, we're not going to be in some kind of soul sleep going, come on. <laughs> not going to happen. All right. All right, one more. U of A. You like your coach? I love everything about that school. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you have them. <laughs> <laughs> so chapter 3, uh, verse 5. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Mm-hmm. So does that then make the argument that you can lose your salvation? No. What it means is once your name is in the book of life, what he is saying, those who are in white, their names are in the book of life. He will ne- they will never lose their salvation. Their sins are forgiven as far as east is, is from west. So it's a reference to those who still have not soiled their clothes, who are still, who are dressed in white, who have actually accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who have their name in the Lamb's book of life. They can't, they, they will not be blotted out. Okay, I've got to close now, or Kaboom's going to come in and just... Do the rapture right here. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for being here tonight. Um, Heavenly Father, I just pray that you be with us this week. Protect us, guide us. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come here next week, um, we will be um, just eager to learn more about you. We thank you so much for what you're doing in this church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what's happening with, with the India Ask. We thank you for those who have given of their, of their hearts and their finances to be able to, to take these children and give them a, a place to call home. Heavenly Father, we thank you, thank you, thank you for everything you're doing. We love you and we praise you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, go sign up for that pie fight. Let's break that record. Head on out.